This morning, we're continuing our study of what it means to be more than a conqueror. We've been studying the life of victory over the last few weeks, looking at the life of a man named Joshua as the people of God who had been delivered from Egypt, had wandered in the wilderness, were now entering the promised land. And we have looked and learned several things from this man and from the nation as they traveled. Today, the title of this message is Making the Right Call. Making the Right Call. In every battle, there are critical decisions to be made. And if you're not aware or conscious of the battle that you're in, uh, you may not treat a decision as seriously as you should. But we have decisions to make, and they can make a tremendous difference between victory and defeat. Making the right call. In Joshua chapter 9, we're going to read, beginning in verse 3 in just a moment, about a moment in Joshua's life that we can learn a great deal from when it comes to making the right call. Joshua chapter 9, and I want to begin reading in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And of course it was all a ruse to deceive them into making a deal uh, so that they could escape what all the other cities were facing, which was total destruction. And, and come down to verse 14. That's a pivotal verse. Verse 14. In response to these Gibeonites, it says, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. I tell you, if I had a pencil and I was reading that with a, something I could write on, I would circle that verse. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors who dwelt near them. The Gibeonites were pretty sharp, weren't they? In the first two verses, in reaction to the defeat, of the Canaanites at Jericho where the walls fell down and at Ai, just thorough defeats. The other cities and kings of Canaan formed a coalition and they were going to unite to do battle with Joshua and the people of Israel. The Gibeonites made a different decision. They decided that these Israelites were going to win and that the God behind them was more powerful than any God they had ever known. And so they got desperate, and they decided they would do this deception 
in order to make a deal and somehow spare their lives. Now, in this particular instance, it turned out pretty good because there's a lot of similarities between the Gibeonites and Rahab. Uh, they clearly saw something in Yahweh, the Lord God, that they needed to fear and pay attention to. They respected him. And so they were willing to do anything to survive. And just like Rahab did whatever it took to survive, these people were doing whatever it took to survive. And they never rebelled against Israel. Joshua made the deal with them. They kept the promise. Some of the people said, let's go ahead and kill them. They lied to us. And Joshua said, no, we made a promise. And so he let them live. And ultimately, the Gibeonites settled in the lands belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. And they kept their word. And what Joshua did was make them servants or slaves. And what their assignment was, was to carry water and wood for the altar and sacrifices in the worship of God. And so the Gibeonites became very much a fixture in the worship of God in the history of Israel. Years later, Saul decided he would try to correct Joshua's error, and he killed some of the Gibeonites before he was himself killed. And as a consequence of that, God brought a famine on the land of Israel for three years. And David finally figures out what's going on, and he goes back to the Gibeonites and makes it right. But they never rebelled. They became part of the worship of God. And so the story turned out good. But there's something very significant here that you need to see. This, this was used of God, but Joshua made a mistake. And we need to learn from this story. We need to see something. The writer, the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made that statement in verse 14. And it's so significant because after this, never again was Joshua defeated or missed God or was deceived. And so this is valuable in terms of you and I learning how to make the right call in sense of the spiritual battle that you and I are engaged in. So here's our question today. Three keys to making the right call in a spiritual war. Here's the first one. Do I know my limitations? Do I know my limitations? In verse 14, it said in the first part of the verse, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And, and something was missing. Something was wrong. And I want you to see what they did right that was insufficient by itself. To make a good decision for example you can have experience with past victories uh, they did as a people of Israel they had defeated Jericho and they had defeated Ai once they got past the sin of Achan and so you can have great experience as a Christian and great knowledge based on that experience and still miss God something else I see them doing you can possess a determination to obey God's Word in verse 7 it says, then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, and these are the Gibeonites, perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? In Deuteronomy 7 and in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, in both places, God says, the cities that I am giving you do not make a treaty with those people. Now, those cities that are far away, you can, you can capture them if they're willing to make peace with you. You can make peace with them. 
but the cities in the land that I'm giving you, they must be totally destroyed. And so these men are asking the right question. They are sensitive to God's word. You may be near us. You may be people that are part of this land. How can we make a covenant with you? So you can be determined to obey God's word and still miss God. Something else that's happened here. They're asking the right questions. In verse 8, Joshua says, who are you and where do you come from? That's the right question. And you and I can do that. We can look at a situation that we're facing. We can analyze it. We can think about what God's word says about it. And we can ask the right questions. You can apply good common sense. In verses 12 and 13, it says the Gibeonites made a good case. They said, this bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these, our, our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. And they're appealing to the logic in the minds of the Israelites. And, and the Israelites were thinking about that. And so it can make good sense. It can be common sense. Well, there's nothing to think about here. The right decision is to do this or that. And that's what you and I can do and miss God. You can do a thorough fact check. You can check all the facts. In verse 14, the very first part of the verse, it says, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. That word means sampled. The people said the clothes were old. They looked at their clothes. Our bread's moldy and dry. They looked at the bread. It was moldy and dry. The wineskins were old and torn. They looked at the wineskins. And they took some of those things. And they reached a conclusion. And it was the wrong one. But they did all of these things right. And they still made a mistake. And you and I are much that way. We can still be blindsided. We can be deceived by an enemy who's an infinitely smarter than you and me. When you and I make a decision, we tend to approach decision-making this way. I have a decision to make, and so as a Christian, what I want to do is that I want to make the right decision. And so what does God's Word say? And that's perfectly correct. You should consider that and all the other ways that we use to make a decision. And, and in the process, what we tend to do is we are, we are turning to God with a decision. We're saying, God, I need help with this decision, and I'm enlisting you to help me. And that's all wrong. We are called to follow him in every decision, not enlist his help. He is not there as our co-pilot. He is there as our Lord and as our God. I am needy. I am desperately needy. I need God. I need who he is. I need what he knows. And if I forget that, I'm going to be in big trouble. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, he writes, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Well, God, I've done all the right things. I've checked everything out. I've, I've applied the scientific method. I've done my homework. I've checked the facts. Now, why is there more hope for a fool than for a man who's wise in his own eyes? Because a man who's wise in his own eyes does not know his limitations. And you and I are limited in what we know. We're limited in what we can do. We're limited in terms of our future. What if today you, were, you left Wind Baptist Church 
and somebody on the side of the road had bag after bag after bag after bag after bag sitting on a table. And they were, they were grab bags. They were mystery bags. You don't know what's in them. But the guy selling the bags says, it's Valentine's Day. And, and these are red bags. And so they're only a dollar, but I can't let you look in it first. There are different things in each bag. And, and so you may get something really good or maybe something that's just worth a dollar. But I'm selling these bags on Valentine's Day, and you think, well, this is a good deal. This makes good sense. And so you pay your dollar, and you get one of the bags. And you look inside, and there's a, uh, a Valentine someone made for you. And you say, well, that, that, that's nice. That's what you expect, right? That's what you expect to happen. Or you reach inside your bag, and there's some chocolate in there, a little chocolate heart. Oh, man, that would be good if that was in the bag. But what if in all the bags, all you found was a dirty sandal? You'd say, well, that's not very Valentine-y, a dirty old sandal. And you know, every decision that you and I make is like that. We can look at the outside. We can make some assumptions. Well, it's red. We can say today's Valentine's Day. Lots of people wearing red today. And so on this day, there must be something related to Valentine's in the bag. It must be something special. It must turn out a certain way. If I make the choice to get the red bag on Valentine's Day, it's going to it's going to turn out just fine, and yet I don't know what's in the bag. And when you and I make a decision, we are limited because I don't know what's coming that I might not expect. I don't know what the unintended consequences are of making a particular decision, of going a certain direction. I don't possess that kind of knowledge, but God does. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The best way to make the right call is not to be the one who makes the call. The best way to handle your decisions is to give your decisions to God and say, these aren't my decisions. You're my king. You're my Lord. I'm following you. You have a plan for me. And dear Father, I don't want to miss one thing that you have for me. And so, Father, this decision, it's your decision. Do you know your limitations? These men at this moment didn't understand that. They learned it. They learned it the hard way. But they didn't understand that. A second thing, a key to making the right call in a spiritual war. Know your limitations. Secondly, have I discovered the relationship between victory and in my prayer life. Have I looked at that? Do I know the relationship between victory and my prayer life? We look again at verse 14 at the end of the, of the verse, the second half of the verse. And it says, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them. I want you to notice three things about that phrase and what happens right after that. The first decision that he made to make peace with them led to all the other wrong decisions. Because right after this, they made a covenant with the people not to kill them. And then the whole congregation swore an oath. They, they made a promise not to kill them. And so the first wrong decision led to other wrong decisions. It's, you're only one decision away from complete defeat. One decision away from 
from being defeated, from being deceived. And that's what happened to him. Another thing I want you to see is that God will make you let a wrong, make, a, make a wrong decision. He will let you make a wrong decision. I mean, there's, there's total silence here at this moment. God's not saying anything. Why? Because they didn't ask. And if you never ask the Lord, you can't be upset with him at the outcome of the decision that you make. And yet, how many times do we make a decision and we turn to the Lord and we say, God, why did you let this happen? And, and if he could speak back in an audible voice, he would say, because you never asked me. And God loves you, but he will not force himself on you. He wants you to be in a relationship with him, but he's not going to force you into that relationship. And so the other thing I see is that Joshua at this moment is not leaning on the Lord. He's saying, I got this. I got this. How important is it that we pray in the midst of a battle? I want to call your attention for a moment to Exodus 17. And you can, it'll be on the screen or you can look it up. Exodus 17, verse 10. It's an incident earlier when the people first came out of Egypt. The first battles they fought in the wilderness were with a group of people called Amalek, the, Am the Malachites. And when they were getting ready to fight this battle, Moses assigns the battle, the fighting, to Joshua. But then he does something that I want you to see. In verse 10, it says, So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And so you have this battle taking place, and there are people on the battlefield who are fighting. And Moses is representing the presence of God over this battlefield. And he is interceding. He is, he is praying. And the common way to pray in Old Testament times was not as much on your knees with your eyes closed, bent over, but standing with your hands raised. And they prayed that way. And so he stood over the battlefield and he raised his hand and he prayed. And his hands were up. They made progress against the enemy. But when he got tired, his hands came down. The enemy advanced and the people of God were being defeated. Now why didn't God just wipe them out? I mean, you've got to ask yourself that question. We've been asking that some with Joshua. We need to ask that question ourselves. Why doesn't God, if he's going to defeat the Amalekites, why doesn't he just say, people of God, stand there, just, just pray, and all, they're all going to drop. All your enemies are just going to drop. Why does he do it this way? Trouble, Gibeonites, are a reminder that you and I need him. You and I are interested in results. God is interested in your relationship with him. 
And before we get caught up in the battle, he is wanting us to be caught up with him, to know him, to, to love him, to seek him. You know, when we, we first become Christians, for many of us, our experience is one of excitement and our walk is so simple. I, I want to know him. I read his word to know him. I want to talk to him, so I just talk to him. And I pray, and I rely on him and trust him. And then as we get older, things seem to get so complicated, and we make things so difficult, and it doesn't have to be that way. I remember when, um, when I first began to preach, and I was 19 years old, and I was uh, going to college, and I had transferred to a school from the University of Texas. I went to Blue Mountain College. And one morning, I was new. Nobody knew me. When I first went there, I had a beard. Back then, all the guys in ministry had to shave. You couldn't have a beard and preach. And um, really. And so I had to shave. And, and the chairman of the Bible department would get calls periodically from churches saying, can you send someone out? We need someone to preach for us this Sunday. Can you, can you send someone? And he'd gotten one of those calls on a Sunday morning. And he came into the dining hall where I was sitting with one of my friends. And, and he, said, he said, I need somebody to go preach at a little Methodist church in the north part of the county. And I was really eager, but I didn't say anything because he wasn't talking to me. He was talking to my friend. My friend said, Dr. Travis, I can't go, but Don here, Don is dying to preach. And I, I nodded my head. And... Uh, he didn't know me, the Bible professor didn't know me that well. We became great friends. He was one of my fathers in the Lord. But, but at that moment, he didn't know me. He kind of looked and he said, that was the guy that came here with a beard. I'm not sure about that guy. He says, okay, here are directions. And it was way out in the middle of nowhere, one of the oldest Methodist churches in Mississippi. Way out, I mean, I, mean, it was, it was, I got lost going there several times. And I had to get directions and I found my way there. And when I got there, it was just one, one building that had a little bitty foyer as you went in, a set of double doors and another set of double doors going into the auditorium. And then I think beyond that, they had a little kitchen. On either side of the foyer, there was a little room. Um, I don't know what they were for, but I, I saw that they were still doing Sunday school in the auditorium. It was just one big Sunday school class. And so I turned right, and I went into this little room, and I closed the door. And it was probably, I think, the third time I'd ever preached maybe the fourth, and I looked at my, my notes, and it was a message from Max, and I looked at my notes, and I felt immediately that these notes were terribly inadequate for the task that I had been assigned to preach God's word to these people, and I felt so inadequate, and I felt so unprepared and I didn't know any better except to get down and to say, God, this, these notes are terrible. But Father, would you take them and would you take your word and would you cause it to live? And would you make it fly? And I didn't know any better but to pray that way. And you know what? I don't ever want to be a kind of preacher who just has it all wired together and thinks that as long as I've studied and I've got my notes, that I can just come and preach God's word. I need him. 
But you know, it's just as true that you need him. You need him to be a dad to your kids. It's not enough to do all the right things. God wants us to depend on him, and we have a part in the victory. We have a part in the process. It's not just all God. You know, when, when things go wrong and we're defeated, we take the blame. But, 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 and we had a rightful part in that. But when there's a victory, we are part of the process of victory. And so God's not just saying, go fight your battle. Go do your thing. Read my word and do all the right stuff. He's saying, lean on me and then go do what you're supposed to do. And so many times we think, well, if we're going to, if I'm going to have a godly family, then there are certain things I need to do. And we have some wonderful resources for you to help you as a, in your family. If you're married, if you're a senior adult, if you're a single adult, we've got resource guides you can pick up. And there's some basic guidance there to help get you started in thinking about how to do those things. But you can do all the right things in your family. You can apply God's word to every decision in every situation. But if you are not depending on him in prayer, if you are not seeking his counsel, you can still miss God. And things can still go awry. How important is prayer? I believe with all my heart he comes in answer to prayer. That in some way that is mysterious to me that I don't fully understand, he has chosen prayer to be the primary means by which he works in our world. This is demonstrated throughout scripture. It is demonstrated in church history as we see men and women of God who are seeking him revival in churches when God's presence becomes thick among a group of people. All of those things, the advance of the church, every historic significant advance of the church can be traced back to somebody or some group of people who were praying. And as Southern Baptists, we are a people who are experiencing very little evangelistic impact nationally. And I wonder why. And could it be that we might be doing all of the right things, trying to build our churches, doing all the right things, but we have left the most important thing undone and that's to take his counsel and to seek him i want you to see also that that prayer is tiring you know we can get a picture in our mind of prayer and we think well that doesn't look very hard how hard can that be and prayer is tiring here you have an 80 year old man and how long can you hold your hands up you know that battle was not over in five minutes. And he holds his hands up as long as he can. And he can't hold them any longer. And, and even though he's doing it with all his strength and all of his might, eventually the blood drains from his hands. He just can't hold them up anymore. And his hands begin to drop. And every time his hands drop, he's, he's, he's well-intentioned. He's doing the right things. He's working at it with all of his might and all of his heart. But there are times when you cannot bear your burdens or fight your battles by yourself. And so Aaron comes and they bring a stone and they set the man down. And, and somebody comes alongside him, her on one side, and lifts his hand up. And her comes on the other side and lifts his hand up. Do you need someone to pray with you? Do you need someone to help carry your burden? To help lift you up? 
That's why as a church, we offer opportunities every week as part of our response time for pastors and others to pray with you. When you're weighted down and you've prayed and prayed and you, you've prayed all you can and you're, you're ready to quit, you're ready to give up, but as we saw at Jericho, there might be only one lap left to go. You just need someone to come alongside and pray with you and join with you. And you keep trying to do it by yourself. The first and third Thursday nights of each month, we have time right here dedicated, set aside just to pray. We'll be doing that this week. There are groups of people scattered out through the county, men who pray together each week, women who pray together each week that are part of this church. There are pastors that I meet with to pray with on a weekly basis, and we lift each other up. We can't do it alone. Three keys to making the right call in a spiritual war. Do I know my limitations? Number two, have I sought the Lord's counsel? Number three, am I experiencing the peace of God? Am I experiencing the peace of God? Again, at the end of verse 14, Joshua 9, 14, the Bible says, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. After this happened, after this business with the Gibeonites, you can look for it yourself. But after this, you know, they had, they had the experience at Jericho where he met the captain of the Lord's armies. You remember that? And he fell down and he began to realize there was so much more behind the battle than what he could see. There was a conflict much greater, much more intense, and it involved the armies of the Lord fighting a spiritual war. And he fell down, and when he fell down, the walls fell down. And we saw at Ai how hidden sin can erode your ability to fight and to do battle. And we talked about what happens when you and I fail and how we can get up again. That's not the end of the story for you and me. That if we know Christ, he has forgiven us and he has taken away our sin at the cross. And I can, I can come to him and I can be made clean and I can get up and go forward again. But here he learns the final lesson, and when he learns this lesson, you can read the entire remainder of the book of Joshua, and he is never defeated again, he never misses God again, he is never deceived again. It is so monotonous that they just kind of tell the story in a list. Just a list. This city fell, that city fell, that city fell. And wouldn't it be nice to know that there's a way to live that you don't have to worry about missing God? Seeking the Lord became part of Joshua's life. He never again did a major decision, a battlefield decision, without consulting the Lord. King David was a lot like that. When he fought his wars and his battles, he was constantly, it's recorded in the text, he was seeking the Lord, inquiring of the Lord before he made a decision. In 1 Samuel 23, 2, he asked the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? 1 Samuel 30, verse 8, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? 2 Samuel 5, 19, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? He never assumed anything. He never assumed God's with me because I've trusted him, so he's always with me. Every battle I go into, I'm going to win. I'm going to know the right thing to do. And I prayed once 20 years ago, that's sufficient. I don't need to pray anymore. But you know, that's not what God wants from you, is it? He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. 
He wants you to love him. He wants you to experience him. In the Old Testament, they use a process of drawing lots to determine what the will of God was. We don't do that anymore. The reason for that is because when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside every person who completely puts their trust in Jesus for salvation. And the Holy Spirit is for us all that Jesus would be if he were here in person in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is here to lead us, to speak to us, to guide us. His role is to communicate to you and me the very presence of God. And he is God. And he is the Lord. And he guides us in many ways. If you've never taken the study course, Experiencing God, I, I encourage you to do that. And uh, perhaps we'll offer that here sometime. Maybe somebody who's done it several times could teach it. But in it, Henry Blackaby talks about some of the main ways. And God speaks in many ways, but, but we know he speaks through prayer. He speaks to us intuitively through prayer. He speaks through people, other Christians. He speaks through circumstances in our life. And he speaks through the Word, the Scriptures. But there's one common denominator that helps us reach a conclusion in every way that God speaks. And the, way, the common denominator is this word, peace. Peace. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it's, it's intuitive, it's rational, but it's beyond reason, it's supra-rational, it's experiential, the peace of God, that will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I come to him, and there's this peace that he offers to you and me. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are two ways to understand this word peace in the New Testament. One is that the fact of peace, in terms of the ceasing of conflict or the end of hostility between two warring parties. Therefore, Romans 5.1 says it this way, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It is a fact. I am no longer at war with God. He is not at war with me. We are not in conflict, having peace with God. It's a fact. But what Paul talks about in Philippians 4 is more than a fact. It is experiential. And it's God communicating to us as we unburden ourselves to him. As I bring my needs to him and I leave them in his feet, if I bring my worries, my anxieties, he says, don't, don't sit with your fear. Don't sit with your anxiety. Let that be a spur to come to the Father and give it to him. And he says, when you have done that, when you have unburdened your soul before him, that there is a peace that he brings and it garrisons your heart and your mind. It's like a wall. And you can walk out of that prayer time. You can walk out of that time alone with God. And, and anything can happen. And you know it's okay because you've been with the king. And you've been with the master. And you have unburdened your soul. And he has garrisoned your heart with peace. Now that is not something that we are only to experience by unburdening our soul. It is also a way that he guides you and me. So that we know we got a handle on what he wants. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. The Bible says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And that word rule means to be a referee. 
to be an umpire. Uh, when I ran track and field, if, if we were running a, a sprint or any kind of a race around the track where you had to stay in your lanes, if I stepped out of my lane, I would foul out and I'd be disqualified for the rest of the run. And when you get out of line, part of the thing that the Holy Spirit does is he says, that's a foul, my son, my daughter. That's a foul. You're out of line. You shouldn't do that. And so he convicts us and he speaks to us. And so as I'm thinking about making a decision, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he speaks to me and communicates to me peace or no peace. And if there's a dis-ease in me, a lack of settledness, and I'm getting ready to do something, should I go forward and do it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, this is subjective. It is experiential. But it is real. And you and I can grow in our sensitivity to the presence of the Holy Spirit communicating the peace of God or the absence of his peace. We're to do this as a way of life. Joshua never again experienced missing God because he learned from his Gibeonite experience. Here's the bottom line. The right call is always his call. The right call is always his call. During this part of our service, we, we respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through his word. And there are a lot of ways to respond. You can close your Bible, put everything away. God may speak to you about a way of responding, and it's very important that you are listening and that you are sensitive when he speaks. It is a privilege, it is a treasure when God speaks to you. And you and I should never take that for granted. It is your birthright, if you're a Christian, to sense and respond to the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And I fear that you and I can sometimes become so flippant and so careless that we don't understand that this person who lives within us is God and he is to be listened to and obeyed. He is Lord. If you do not know Christ, I want to encourage you today to publicly put your trust in him. The Holy Spirit does not live in a person until they have fully trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Salvation is what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross when he died for your sin. Your sins are those things you did apart from God's direction, apart from his will, apart from his power, and those sins accumulate. And Jesus Christ took your sins on himself and died in your place. And the neat thing about that is he just didn't cancel out your sin. He takes your sins away. 
He takes them away. And you are in Christ as pure as the driven snow in the sight of your Father because Jesus takes your sins away. He is our Savior. And if you've never trusted Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. That's the beginning. That's the first step. And when you trust Christ, one of the things he does, he forgives your sin, but he also puts inside of you his Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, comes to live inside you. And you spend the rest of your life growing in this relationship with God through his Spirit. And I want to invite you to that life today. There'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle in just a moment. They're here to counsel with you. They'll, they'll share scripture with you about how a person is saved, how they can know Christ. But I invite you to come. Whether you're in the balcony or down here on the floor, don't hesitate. Come. Believer, my brother, my sister, have you understood that by yourself you are inadequate to make a decision? That you are limited? Are you seeking the Lord with your decision? Are you unburdening your heart and learning his peace so that you can walk in his peace? So you can recognize it when it comes? Are you walking in such a way that your whole life depends on what he leads you to do? I want to invite you this morning, if you need to just bow your head, the rest of us may sing, you may just need to bow your head and say, oh God, I realize now that you want me to be in relationship with you. You didn't want to just save me. You don't want to just help me. You want to live with me. You want me to know you. You want me to enjoy you, to praise you. And maybe you just need to take a moment and just talk to him about your relationship with him. Because God has spoken to your heart how you respond. You know, somebody is here in a group this size who is weighted down. You've been praying. You've been praying, and you are burdened, and you are weighted down, and you need an errand to pray with you. You need a you need a herd to come alongside and pray with you. These pastors will pray with you. If you come kneel at the front, grab somebody in the pew that you know, bring them with you, pray together. You can pray there. You can pray in the balcony. You can pray at the steps. I don't care. But heaven forbid you should come here weighted down and not have someone pray for you. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, its clarity, its purity, and its power. And Father, as we respond to you now, we welcome your Holy Spirit, asking that he would speak to us, that you would move in every heart and make clear your word for each person. Father, for the spiritual conflict that somebody may be experiencing in this room, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would defeat the enemy and set that dear one free. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.